0: Hey, everyone. I'm Joe Fisher. For those of you who don't know me, I'm on staff at CCV. I'm working as a student ministry associate. I'm also taking classes right now at RTS. So, and I'm reading today's scripture. So our scripture reading this morning is from Revelations 12 and 13. Chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns. And on his head, seven diadems, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to the male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron but our child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place in them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent. He who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even until death. Chapter 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems and on its horns and blasphemous names on its head. and the beast that I saw was like a leopard; its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth like that of a lion's mouth. It was like a lion's mouth, and to the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. And one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marvelled as they followed the beast and they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying. Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God. Also, it was allowed to give war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world and the book of the Lamb who was slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of earth. It had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence. It makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs, it deceives who dwells on earth. Also accuses all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This call for wisdom, let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. The word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God.
1: I love Christmas, and I know we're in the season of Lent and leading up to Easter, and everything outside does not look like the season of Christmas, but just bear with me for a little moment here. I love the season of Christmas, and it's all the things that go with it, whether it's the Christmas tree with all the lights, people's houses lit up, it's getting darker, candles, fire in the fireplace— and then Christmas music, and I really do love the music and the food and all the ambiance that goes around with it. there's something that is just so deeply joyful and comforting, almost just like being wrapped in whatever is a warm hug is is that season of Christmas, Oh little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie, silent night, holy night, you know it's that those that, that imagery that's there from that nativity scene and the Christmas. But listen to John's interpretation of the same thing. You know, John, the Gospel writer who writes the book of Revelation, doesn't give us a nativity story like Luke does and Matthew does, but he does in Revelation 12. Listen to his version, starting in verse 1 of chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun With the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars, she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, verse 3. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood, stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Verse 5, she gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness. That's rather dramatic and actually grotesque. I mean, even reading it for now the 10th or 12th time in the past couple of weeks, it's an unsettling set of images. The woman who's about to give birth, her child, and a dragon ready to devour the baby. What is going on here? What is going on here, according to several commentators, is that John, the writer of Revelation, is using well-known legends, folk tales of the ancient world, in order to give the narrative of what God has been doing, and so he's using uh, that famous tale that's actually been around for, for millennia that came from uh, Egypt had a tale like this and Greece had a tale like this and Disney's The Lion King is a tale like this. It's that of an usurper of the throne, the child who is supposed to be the king, but then somebody coming in from outside taking the throne and then them coming back to, to claim it as their own. What I love is that this is, this is essentially a Christmas story. And it's a central part of what John is doing. N.T. Wright, in his short book, Revelation for Everyone, suggests this. Chapter 12, this scene that we just read, is the central scene in the whole book of Revelation. The woman and her child are carrying the purposes of God for the world. The dragon is doing his best to snuff out those purposes. So think about that. What's happening here on one level is it's one of the reasons why we can't say Revelation is all about the future, because this is going behind. Revelation is written around the end of the first century, and this is talking about the birth of Christ on one level. On one level, this is the Christmas story. It is a woman about to give birth to a son who will rule, and the dragon wants to kill it from the beginning. Eventually, he works in Matthew 2 through the hands of Herod, the king, trying to kill all the firstborn children in Bethlehem. But this is the, this is the Christmas story from a cosmic, spiritual, and eternal perspective. It's not, um, this is not the one that you have sitting under your tree with the little figurines. But this is what's going on. It's the story behind the story. When the curtain is pulled back and you see the spiritual battle that is alive in Mary, And the baby to be born, and the world around that wants nothing to do with this Savior. And yet, as uh, many commentators also point out, this isn't just the Christmas story that's being told here. It's actually the story of God's purposes for the world as they've been playing out again and again. There's a lot of echoes of the Exodus story here, with Israel, God's people, being the woman giving birth to her children who will live forever, but Egypt trying to kill them and God delivering them. It's the story of Eden, and how even in the midst of Eve's sin, God promises that she will bear a child, and that the Satan, the serpent, is trying to kill all of her children, their and offspring, and has been ever since. And this is the story of the church, of God's creation of his people, and all the children that will be born to them, that includes us, and Satan's desire to kill us, before we take root, before we are able to be the people that God has called us to be. It's a cosmic battle that's being described here using graphic and grotesque, dramatic language and storyline. The story goes on uh, almost in a separate but but parallel story of the dragon now battling with Michael, the archangel. In chapter 12, verses 7 through 9, we get that a war arose in heaven, and Michael and his angels are fighting the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, and they were defeated and thrown down. And it goes on to say that this is this dragon is also known as the deceiver, the devil, Satan. He was cast down to the earth. The dragon is defeated, kicked out of heaven. And the dragon that's being talked about throughout the book of Revelation is identified very explicitly in verse 9 as Satan, the devil, the deceiver, called later on, just a couple verses later, as the accuser. The one who is out to push against the purposes of God. The one who has already been defeated, but who wants nothing more than just to kill and destroy and steal. And what we get... Is the summary of even where we live today in verse 17 of chapter 12 the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of god and hold to the testimony of jesus satan's purpose is to constantly try to destroy and devour us john wants us to realize there's a war going on for our souls satan wants to take us away and God says no you are mine. And the question each day is for whom are we living and how are we going to? You know the, this is this stuff at the beginning beginning of chapter 12 and even though we've been talking about it's a little bit challenging for us because in the west in the west we are rationalists and we get anxious about talk of devils and satan and angels and we have to realize, like, when we look at the problems in the world, right, there's there's two interpretations of many of the problems, if we're talking about it in these terms. And the two interpretations are the traditional and religious sense of things, which, when you look at the problems in the world, a traditionalist would say, the problem is personal sin. The problem is spiritual evil. They would even look at the demonic. But they tend to dismiss systemic issues, Modern secularists, on the other hand, see the problems of the world as being built out of systems and institutions and governments that are evil, but they dismiss personal sin and certainly an individual and personal devil. So which is it? Are the problems in the world tied to personal sin, spiritual evil, or are they tied to systemic brokenness and issues? Christianity, of course, says yes. All of these things are true. There is spiritual evil. Satan is real and individuals are sinful. And and the systems and institutions we as sinful people build are often evil as well and used by Satan for his evil purposes. So one of the things that he builds out off of this is what we get in chapter 13, which is the beasts. In chapter 13, it first talks about a beast coming out of the sea. This is, Satan is kind of pulling together. Here's how I'm going to change and influence the world. The beast out of the sea with seven, uh, ten horns and seven heads empowered by Satan himself, empowered by the dragon. And this is talking about Um, A beast that has authority and power and we talk about this um, and you know People have often put it as one individual down the line But what we hear is there's authority and power in this beast and then it goes on to say in verses 3 and 4 That everyone marveled Followed the beast and they worshiped the dragon and they said who is like the beast who can turn from him? They begin to worship him. That's the response and this is exactly what Satan wants. He wants to deceive and steal and get us to worship something other than the Christ. And so in order to kind of really enforce it, we have a second beast. And I'm rolling through this pretty quickly in chapter 13, verse 11. This is the beast out of the earth. And this beast comes in order to deceive the, the lands, the people with signs and, and all the, the great powerful things that he's doing. Why? in order for people to worship, to worship the beast, to worship the dragon. And he's forcing all in that famous set of passages, verse 16 and 17. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, slave and free, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has that mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name forces all to receive the mark of the beast." Now just pulling back to help us to kind of interpret these things, as we've been looking at the book of Revelation, one of the things that I've been saying is we want to try to understand some of these things and apply them and live them out in our day to day life. And if we're to understand them, they should have been understandable to the first century Christians. So they would have, if they didn't understand it, then then we probably are interpreting it a little bit wrong. But one of the ways to interpret this, that I think is the most faithful, is to recognize when we say who is the beast, who is the Antichrist, which is what it's saying, is to recognize that behind behind Revelation 13 is Daniel 7. We looked at Daniel 7 just a few weeks back, um, about five or six weeks ago. Daniel 7, Daniel has a vision of four creatures or of four um, beasts or four separate statues. And in each of these, what he's getting is a vision of Four kingdoms and the interpretation is it's the Assyrians and the Persians and the Babylonians and each of these kingdoms is an antichrist John is pulling all of these together in the singular grotesque antichrist beast Which for him in his day and age and the people listening to him would have been Rome a powerful institution that claimed all authority made everyone bow to it in order to buy or sell and everyone worshiped it, said, Who can stand up against it? It is the most powerful thing. But by submitting to the authority of Rome, by living fully as if Rome's way was the only way, they were buying into the mark of the beast. And so basically, the Antichrist, and I think a way to interpret this faithfully and understand it throughout all of Scripture, and the way it can be interpreted throughout all of history, is the Antichrist, the beast, is every kingdom and every king. And every culture and every institution that is set up in opposition to God, ignores the authority of God, does not acknowledge Christ as Savior and Lord. This is how you would interpret even later on Revelation 17, talking about the prostitute, the great prostitute, or Revelation 18, Babylon the Great. The the world is filled with institutions and cultural values seeking to woo you into a way that is in opposition to God, seeking to give you, get you to commit into patterns of life that is in, in opposition to the kingdom of God. The Antichrist is a returning thing again and again. And in every culture, in every age, there are spirits of the Antichrist lived out in positions and powers and authorities that we see in our day-to-day life. And the call then is to fight against and to not receive the mark of the beast. And as I've mentioned before, the mark of the beast is not a tattoo or a microchip, but it actually, if you're reading it in light of all of revelation, it is what you're committed to. It's your commitments and your allegiance. It's the question of this, is your primary allegiance and loyalty to God and his kingdom or to something else? What I'm saying is this, you will not accidentally receive the mark of the beast. We choose it. We choose it daily in our priorities and values and what we're living for. Hear that again. You're not going to accidentally, you know, kind of get a new credit card and, oh, you've received the mark of the beast, therefore you're out. Rather, what we do on a daily basis, the things we're living for and committing to are indicative of whether we are marked by God as his children, or we're choosing to align ourselves with the ways of the world, and to be marked by the beast himself. Where's your citizenship? Where's your real identity? This calls for wisdom because I think one of the things we need to see is the way that the dragon or Satan works in our world. Satan is a deceiver, an accuser who wields death, and that comes to play on us all the time. We are called to overcome or conquer the dragon, and actually that's the way Christians are described, those who have conquered the dragon, who have overcome Satan. But we need to recognize the reality of how Satan operates in this world and in our lives he first operates through or one of the ways he does is deception it's described directly in uh, chapter 12 of the dragon being the deceiver he deceives us into sin and unbelief think about going back to the Garden of Eden the very first thing he does as he embodies um, a, a creature a serpent is come up to Eve And his first thing is a question, and the question is, did God really say? That's the first question always that Satan gives to us. Did God really say? Can you really trust him? What does he say to Jesus as he's being tempted in the wilderness? He says, I can give you all the kingdoms of the world. You want heaven? I will offer you heaven. Trust me. He invites us in, deceives us into believing sin is good and unbelief is wise. You know, sin, as we talk about it, is not just uh, moral badness. It is living without regard for God at any point, in any moment. It's not letting God and what he says about what we're doing with our money or our body or our mind or our time have a say on what we're doing. So at any point in any moment when we are living apart from God without regard for God, that is the definition of sin. And unbelief is simply also living without regard for God. But he pulls us into deception, into false belief, into thinking that what I believe, because I believe it, is right and true. And so one of the most common ways that he does that in our culture is through the spirit of the age. It's why... Many Christians today struggle with belief in things that we find hard because they are culturally dissonant. Because we've been discipled, catechized through our screens and through our community and through the things that we think that we have a hard time buying into the historic understanding of who God is in certain areas. Like, could there really be a hell? Could God really not let everyone in? How can Jesus be the only way? What do we do with sexuality and identity? The traditionalist view seems to be really stuck in an ancient world. Where do you get that from? What do we do with that? Things like our identity, the uniqueness of Christ, we have quickly bought into a way that is Seems right, seems wise, seems loving and kind, but is contradictory to the Bible itself, to historic understandings of Christianity. And yet Satan is smart enough to deceive us by saying, Don't, don't, don't look here. Don't don't go look at it yourself. You need a professional to tell you all about that. Look here. Find it here, not here. You're not smart enough. You don't really know it. It's confusing. Don't open it up. But look, if you can read, you can read the Bible. If you can have an inner dialogue, you can pray. Seek God. Seek God for wisdom. And don't just do it by yourself. But don't just do it with this. God invites you to know him. And we seek to know him internally and by what everyone else says. And Satan is very happy with that. His deception is working. But remember this, Satan is not a creator. Satan isn't building anything out of nowhere. He is a mimic. He parodies. He doesn't create. And that's one of the ways he deceives, right? I mean, think of the description in Revelation 12 and 13 is of a dragon and two beasts, It is the unholy trinity. It's a mimic of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The beast itself does things and looks sort of like a grotesque lamb. And it is wounded and comes back, just like the true lamb that was crucified and risen. But it's always a mimic of the things God is doing. The kingdoms of this world promise eternity. They promise eternity heaven, but they are a parody, a mimic of the kingdom of God. And so in our culture, it is power or pleasure or wealth or success or freedom to do whatever you want, live the way you want to live. That's heaven, but actually it's a parody of heaven. It's an enslaving parody of heaven, and that's all that Satan has to offer. And in fact, even the number 666 is not not a literal number because John uses numbers symbolically. The, the number seven he uses regularly going back to Old Testament times to mean perfection, completion. God created the world in seven days. Seven means God's perfect holiness, his perfection. But to repeat something three times is a Hebraic way of emphasizing it. So that's why throughout the Old Testament it says God is not just holy, he is holy, holy, holy. Like, he's really holy. Do you get it? And what John is doing here is, In using 666 as the mark of the beast is saying, it is one short of perfection. It's mimicking perfection. It's one short, which means it's not perfect. And in fact, it is emphatically imperfect. It is very, very, very imperfect. The things of Satan are a deception, a counterfeit. But how do you understand or or spot a counterfeit? You don't study the counterfeit. You study the real thing. You want to know uh, um, a painting that is a counterfeit or a dollar bill that is a counterfeit? You need to study the real artist. You need to know the real dollar bill. And that's what God invites us into, to not buy into the deceptions of Satan. Because when we do, it's not something to play with. When we do, we are actually worshiping Satan. That's what it says in uh, chapter 13, verse 4 says, and they worshipped the dragon. It was talking about the beast and people who got excited about what he was doing. Basically, who bought into the kings and kingdoms and powers and ways of this world. And they worshipped the dragon. For he had given authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast. And they worshipped the dragon. And it's a question that we have to ask is, does the whole earth really worship Satan? Well, then it's the question that we would ask here is, what is worship? Worship is not just singing songs or going to church. Worship is whatever we're living for. Worship is what you sacrifice for, put your hopes in, give your allegiance to. It's what matters most to you. Whatever matters most to you is what you're worshiping. And what John is suggesting here, what Revelation is telling us, is when we live for anything other than Christ, we're living for an antichrist, a false messiah. Whether that is sex or drink or money or a perfect marriage or happy kids or being loved by your friends or successful career to the extent that we are living for priorities and values that are not the kingdom of God. Revelation suggests that to that extent, we are actually worshiping Satan, the deceiver, and we don't even know it. Satan deceives us into sin and unbelief, to worship him completely unaware. He also is an accuser, and he works in accusation to work on our guilt and shame, causing us to doubt God and God's grace and love for us, that it's just not big enough, that Jesus' death isn't sufficient. And and look, we sin, we fall short. We fall short of our own standards, and we certainly fall short of God's. And so he keeps saying that we are guilty full of shame. How did you do this again? How come you fall back in this again? He is a thief that wants to steal our joy and our peace that is ours in Christ. But we need to remember that Satan has already been defeated. Satan is the accuser and the deceiver, but he has lost. He has been conquered by the lamb who was crucified and risen. When we are put our faith in Christ, according to Revelation, we are marked by the Lamb. We are marked as children of God. The Spirit of God, according to Ephesians, takes up residence in us, and we are heirs of eternity. There can be no condemnation, Romans tells us, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Satan cannot steal you from God if your faith is in Christ, but he can render you useless and miserable which is really his favorite move on those of us who call ourselves Christians. He wants us to be bound up in the darkness of our own sinfulness, to live in guilt and shame so that we are miserable because of our kind of falling into sin again and again. And we're useless because we feel unworthy to be a part of what God wants to do in the world through us. But you can conquer Satan how <laughs> well it says that he has already been conquered and so you need to take advantage of that and that's what happens in chapter 12 verse 11 when it talks about those who have overcome Satan it says they have conquered him Satan by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony they've conquered him by the blood of the lamb basically what that's saying is is they believe the gospel. The gospel counters the lies and accusations of Satan. It says that everything that needs to be done for me to be right with God has already been done. Yes, I will sin, but God's forgiveness is even greater. The grace and love of God has been shown to me as a final and finished thing in the death of Christ on the cross. So that No accusation of Satan can stand up against the gospel truth. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I may not feel it, but I am a new creation, Corinthians tells me. I may struggle again and again, but I am holy and right before God because of the blood of the Lamb. And when I cling to that, Satan is undone, completely defeated, and he cannot come back. And so I go to that again and again. The last weapon, the last tool that Satan uses besides deception and accusation is death and fear. We read at the latter half of verse 11 that those who conquered Satan, they put their trust in the blood of the Lamb by the word of their testimony. They claimed the blood of the Lamb. And then it says, for they loved not their lives even unto death. You know, we all live with a fear of death. It's very natural. And on on one level, it's literally a fear of physical death. We don't want to die. And so we live often in constant survival mode. We live in a scarcity mentality that if I don't have enough money or food or stuff, I mean, we saw this a year ago when the pandemic hit. The shelves on the grocery store looked like scarcity and survival. We were afraid to die. And so we live for ourself and our own safety. But it's not just literal death. I think because of our commitments and the kingdoms we're living for, Satan also plays on our fears in the thousand other ways we can die on a daily basis. We fear failure, or loss of our money, or not being approved of. We want to be safe. We want the easy way. We don't want following Christ to cost us. And ultimately, we just don't want to lose anything. So if we can just maintain status quo, we're usually pretty happy. You know, earlier this week, um, I went through a 24 hour period of discouragement, kind of a little bit of just, ugh, sadness. Because I was reading things going on in the news and I was checking social media and seeing what people are posting. And it is the cultural moment that we're in. It's people that I know and just kind of sensing what they believe or what they don't believe. And it felt like <laughs> Satan trying to get me to kind of wallow in that deception and accusation and fear of is anyone else going to stand is anyone else going to stand for Christ in this world or is everyone going to fall away is everyone going to take the easy way out are we just going to live in comfort are we too afraid of suffering and loss Are we afraid of a thousand deaths and real death? (laughs) Will anyone stand? And I ended up, as I usually do, going for a walk, listening to a sermon, listening to God. I watched a, a documentary on Christians in Iran in the underground church there. And in the documentary, one of the most amazing things happened is they were talking about the suffering that they were going through there, and yet how the church in Iran is growing. And it's growing through the poorest and the, and the kind of people who were alcoholics and prostitutes and those who have dealt with abuse, and it was growing through women, and it was growing in places that it shouldn't. And this one woman, she was quoted in there by this other guy. He said uh, he and his wife were able to escape Iran and come to America. But after a short time of living in America, the, the wife wanted to go back to Iran, even though because of their Christianity, they could be arrested, abused, killed. I mean, horrible stuff could happen to them. But she said this after living in America for a little bit. She said, quote, there's a satanic lullaby here and all the Christians are sleepy, and I'm feeling sleepy. And so she wanted to move back, even though it could mean being arrested, tortured, raped, killed. She would rather deal with the confrontation of very obvious evil, and stand up for her faith even unto death, than live lulled to sleep by trying to be full of comfort and peace and not offend and be happy find the easiest way out with what you believe and how you live if the gospel is true then this is also true you cannot die why do we not take our faith more seriously because we're afraid of dying but if christ died and rose again and your faith is in him, you cannot die. Death no longer has control over you. Look, we fear physical death and we fear a thousand other deaths based on whatever it is we're living for. It may not be an actual gallows that you're confronted with, but we live as if whatever could happen to us, whatever we could lose, we've got to hold on to as much as we can because we, we have this fear in our head. What if, what if I can't provide for my family? Or what if I'm found out to be a fraud? What if I'm alone the rest of my life? What if people are talking about me behind my back? What if my spouse finds out what I've been doing? What if my parents don't approve of me? What if I'm publicly embarrassed? What, what if I fail? So we don't even try, we push it down, we live by ourselves, and we live out of fear. But when Christ, not the values of the world, When Christ, not your flesh or what you want primarily, when Christ, not Satan, is your first love and you trust fully in the blood of the Lamb, then you realize that what you really want and most need is already yours in Christ. And then you are free and fearless because you realize you're invincible. There's nothing Satan can do Nothing he can take from you that is not already yours. And even physical death is simply (laughs) a transition into eternity. Satan is real. Revelation wants us to see the enemy behind our perceived enemies and to be aware there's a battle going on, but to not be afraid. The lamb has conquered the dragon. Let us pray. God, this morning, we are people who live in fear and accusation and deception. But you are calling us back even right now through your word preached and read. Convict us in a way that alivens us. Give us hope in the power of Christ resurrected and the hope of life eternal. Give us that fearlessness. Amen.